Well, a year ago, at the beginning of 2019, probably no one in the music industry imagined that later in the year, an album called Jesus is King would top the charts in the USA and Canada and Australia and enter the top five in many other countries, including the UK. And this album, in case you're not aware, was, of course, the ninth album from rapper Kanye West. Now, Kanye was not up to that point known for any Christian faith. He was known for his billion-dollar clothing brand, his marriage to Kim Kardashian. And although he'd mentioned Jesus in previous songs, it was usually in the context of a fair amount of sort of swearing and profanity and seemed to border almost on blasphemy at times. And uh, together with the impression at times that he saw himself in the place of Jesus, not serving him. But things seem to have changed. His album, Jesus is King, has songs about grace for sinners and following Jesus. And every Sunday, West now runs an event called Sunday Service. I don't know where he got the name of that from. but uh, And he sings Christian songs each time, including apparently a Christianized version of the song Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. You know, the, uh, here we are now, entertain us. He sings, let your light shine, it's contagious. Here we are now, inspiration. One writer commented, his transformation from uber-trendy rap superstar into try-hard Christian youth pastor is almost complete. But can God really save and accept a man like Kanye West? It may be that the music and the story of Kanye West leaves you cold. What about a man called Billy McCurry, who I interviewed for a church event a few years ago in my previous church? Billy McCurry was a loyalist terrorist in Northern Ireland who was imprisoned in the Mays prison for murdering a member of the IRA. While he was in prison, he became a Christian. Now he's a Baptist pastor. Is that really possible? Is that really acceptable? Closer to home, think of that family member that seems so unlikely to come to faith. Never in a million years, we might think. Could it happen? That public figure that we see messing up again and again, could they change? Could God accept them? What about you? What about me? What kind of people does God want in his family? What kind of people does God use in his plans? Is it just those who've got everything together? Or is it others? We're returning this term to this book. We started a year ago in chapter 12. and looked at the life of Abraham from chapters 12 to 25. We saw this stranger in a foreign country. As God made extraordinary promises of a great nation coming from this old man and his elderly barren wife, Sarah. The story of the beginning of the people of God. And we saw that this is our story today as well, because this is the same people of God that began in the Old Testament, a particular people that then opened to Jew and Gentile with the coming of Jesus. And as we go through these chapters, one thing is going to stand out again and again that these patriarchs, as we call them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but especially Jacob, who became Israel, the father of the 12 tribes, these guys are unpleasant, 
unloving, deceitful, manipulative, undeserving people. And yet here they are at the heart of the start of God's plan to save the world. They are objects of God's relentless grace. Now, to begin with, let's read chapter 25, uh, verses 19 to 23. Let me just uh, read that to you. So on page 26, read that with me. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he, when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now the book of Genesis is punctuated by these titles, this is the account of so-and-so all the way through, and it tends, particularly in these later chapters, it tends to be the son of the person that it talks about who actually gets focused on. So it was the, this is the account of terror just before the story of Abraham, but terror was the father of Abraham, and so you get the story of Abraham. Now this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. We will see Isaac a bit more next week, but after that, it's mainly Jacob in these chapters 25 to 35. But these chapters begin, as Jacob and Esau are born, with what you might call another election. Now this is, if you want to follow on the yellow sheet on the back of that, you'll see these titles, another election. So... In 2017, when Theresa May called a snap election two years after the previous one, do you remember Brenda from Bristol, who became momentarily famous as she was interviewed by a reporter in the street in Bristol, and uh, she was informed there was to be another election. And she said in very straightforward terms, what, another one? We don't want that, or words to that effect. Now, she has apparently shied away from further comments on elections since that time, But this, in chapter 25, is another election of a slightly different sort. There are lots of similarities between the start of this new section and the start of chapter 12 with Abraham. Each begins with God choosing, God electing, and making promises. So we have a father who is said to be married to a barren woman. At the, end, at the end of chapter 11, it was Abraham married to Sarai. Now it's Isaac married to barren Rebekah. And unlike the shenanigans of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, Isaac simply prays to the Lord for his wife. Do you see that? God answers the prayer and she becomes pregnant with twins. And the children struggled within her. And then, like in chapter 12, God speaks. In chapter 12, he chooses Abraham, those foundational verses at the beginning of chapter 12, and he says he will make him the father of many nations, and all nations will be blessed through him. And here in chapter 25, God is electing again. There will be two nations in your womb, twins, in other words, and shock, horror, the older shall serve 
the younger. Now this goes completely against the normal way of things happening in the ancient world. You would expect the older son, the firstborn, to inherit most of his father's property and to be the head of the future family. And so like in chapter 12, God is again choosing or electing one person over another. And for many people, their response to God's election is rather like Brenda from Bristol in a slightly different sense. It's not positive. It's a bad thing. How can God choose some and not others? Is that your response? Have you heard that? Isn't it desperately unfair, many people think? Now, one thing to say in response to that is that God choosing a specific people in the Old Testament was always for the purpose of blessing the whole world. Through you, all nations will be blessed, God says to Abraham. So election isn't meant to be an exclusive thing where God is just saying, well, you can be blessed and you can't be, and that's all there is to say. It's always outward focused. And in one sense, it's the same for the church today. You see, we we are chosen as God's people, the New Testament tells us. We are set apart to be different, but it's always in order to reach the world, not to hide away. And that pattern isn't just a New Testament thing. It starts right there in Genesis 12 and beyond. But when it comes to choosing Jacob over Esau or any human being over another, so that one person becomes a Christian and another doesn't, or that kind of thing, that can still feel very hard to understand. It can still feel unfair. Now, our first reading that we heard helps us with this. This is why we read from Romans chapter 9. You might have thought there was a slightly strange place to start. Hopefully it will become clear. In Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes from these verses in Genesis. So just turn with me back to Romans chapter 9 for a few moments. You'll find it on page 1136. Have a look at that. And just follow, we can't go into all the details here, but follow me with me through what he's saying here in these verses. We can get the big picture of what, of what Paul is, is, is saying. Verse 6. He's arguing that just being a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Israel, is not enough to make you Israel. In other words, just being born a Jewish person doesn't automatically make you part of God's people. This is the big thing that the New Testament is dealing with everywhere, all over the New Testament. And he goes on, that's because this is how God has always done things in his people. It's being a child of the promise that counts, not merely a natural child. So first, verses 8 and 9, the children of Abraham were children born after a promise, he says. Then verse 10, Rebekah's children, Jacob and Esau, had Isaac as their father. But verse 11, before they were born, before they could do anything wrong, God says the older will serve the younger. And why is that? Verse 11 in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying there are two alternatives. Follow me with this, okay? Either, in the end, God's plans come down to human effort, or they rest, in the end, on the unconditional promise of God. Either, do you see, either God leaves it to human beings to respond as they see fit, you know, take it or leave it, God's done this, do you want it or not, it's up to you. 
which gives some of the initiative to human beings in God's plans, do you see? Or it's down to him. He chooses who's in his people. So, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it, says God. Now, just, let's just get, get, understand that for a moment because that's slightly odd to our ears today. The language of hating is, is perhaps deliberately overstating for effect, but it's the same kind of thing that Jesus says. When he says, if anyone would come after me but would not hate their mother and father and sister and brother, of course he doesn't mean hate in the way that we often mean it with associated malice and violence and all that kind of thing. But what he means is in the end you can't have split loyalties. And so verse 13, the point is Jacob is God's choice, not Esau's. Jacob is the one that God has chosen. And so immediately we come to verse 14, which is a very natural response to this. Well, doesn't that make God unjust then? How can he possibly do this? This is our question that we started with. How can it be fair for God to choose one and not the other? Isn't it unfair to choose Jacob and not Esau? Not at all, says Paul. So look at verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Do you see, in the end, it is up to God to decide who he has mercy on. That is the point. The alternative is that we say that God looks to see which human beings look better than others and chooses them. But no, that's salvation by works, isn't it? That means that we get to earn God's approval, which we know we can't do. Or perhaps that God looks to see who are the ones who have faith or who are going to have faith. I'll I'll save them. And of of course it's true that you must respond with faith in order to be saved. But the point is you can't chalk that faith up as a brownie point. Even the faith that we put in God is a gift from him, a response to his initiative. So I often talk about the rescue helicopter at sea. We, We had a picture of this on Christmas Day, in fact, if you were here. But it's like, you know, if you're drowning in the middle of the ocean... And the rescue helicopter comes along and they winch down the guy with the life ring to rescue you. And all you have to do is put out your hand and he will grab you and pull you out of the ocean to safety. And when they finally get you into the press conference afterwards so you can talk about this extraordinary rescue, where is the focus going to be? Is it going to be on you with your empty hand. You know, if it hadn't been for me reaching up, the rescuer wouldn't have been able to grab me. You know, that's totally ridiculous, isn't it? The focus is entirely on the helicopter and the guy on the rope coming down and your empty hand is just the way that you receive what he offers. Do you see? That is faith. Not a brownie point. It's a response to God's initiative towards us. It's his initiative. That's where the initiative lies. Now, why does this matter? It matters because it means all the glory then goes to God. See, we are creatures who who love to try and seize some of the glory for ourselves. Like small children pulling faces in a wedding photo. It's not about us, but we want it to be. And in the end, that actually is just an expression of sin, pulling the spotlight away from the God who made the universe and who made us and turning it onto ourselves. 
So God gets to choose. All the glory goes to him. And, and, and then as if to underline the fact that this election of Jacob over Esau is totally undeserved, we then take a closer look at these two brothers. So turn back with me to chapter 25 of Genesis on page 26. Here are these two brothers in different ways, totally unattractive, two unattractive candidates. Two unattractive candidates for God's election. Back in chapter 12, there is an initial fulfillment of the promises that God makes to Abraham. Abraham got up and went to the land God was showing him straight away. And and, and here from verse 24, there is an immediate fulfillment as well. And so we're going to read that. Verse 24. When the time came for her, Rebecca, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that stew, that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So there is red, hairy, alpha male Esau and quiet, retiring, smooth-skinned Jacob. Jacob's name literally means heel. And it also means the verb to overreach, to grasp beyond, to usurp, we might say. Esau may mean hairy, we don't quite know. He's also known in the Bible as, as Edom, as in verse 30, which means red. Now these days, gingerism is a bit of a thing, isn't it? Any redheads here can tell us whether it's real or imaginary. But it's certainly the case that historically, red hair was viewed with suspicion, especially in biblical times. And and even in medieval art, you can look, you find, whenever they depict Judas Iscariot, he's depicted as a redhead. Make of that what you will. So here is red and hairy Esau. And they start to grow up, verse 27, and there's some poor parenting in the mix with each parent choosing one child and creating a man's man and a mummy's boy. But even with all this going on, the question is, is there anything here that will make us think God got it wrong, that Esau got what he didn't deserve from God when he chose Jacob over him? Well, certainly not. We see first that Esau confirms his unworthiness. So Esau has been out in the field and he's exhausted. He comes home famished. Give me the red stuff, this red stuff, he says literally. 
And Jacob gets straight in there. And we'll look at him in a moment of what's going on here. But here is his opportunity to strike, to grab the heel, as it were. Sell me your birthright now. I'm about to die, says Esau. Really, Esau? This is the hunger of a small child, isn't it? Or or maybe a teenager, I don't know. I'm literally dying of hunger here. I haven't eaten for at least three hours. But this is a hunger that comes with a a short-sighted shallowness. What use is my birthright now when I'm hungry? You know the famous marshmallow test where four-year-olds are are told they can have one marshmallow now or wait half an hour and have two. And if you follow the ones who took one marshmallow, they end up bankrupt and miserable. And the ones who waited half an hour end up millionaires, you know? Something like that. Esau would have failed the marshmallow test. But the thing is, as he does that... He's a picture, isn't he, of of what all of us are like in our rebellion against God. I'd rather chuck away the privileges of being made in God's image and living his way, and I'd rather have my own pleasure here and now, even if only for a short time. 70, 80, 90, 100 years maybe. But still finite. Of course, our, our culture tells us in so many ways, or wants to tell us, that our lives on earth will go on forever. Don't worry about that. And when we're young, particularly, it's easy to believe that that's the case. But whether we are 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 years old, here is a picture of how foolish it is to think and behave like that. That'll do me, we think. What use is being made in God's image, we think. And we throw that away. We throw away what we were created for. We throw away our birthright. We throw away the possibility of life with God, knowing him forever. That is Esau's logic at work here. So Jacob moves in for the kill. Swear to me first. And Esau does it. And what does Esau get? Not even a meaty red stew as seemed to be implied. Merely a bowl of lentils and some bread. And I know we're in veganuary and all that. But this is not meant to be exciting as he receives this. It is a disappointing uh, thing to receive. And he ate and he drank and he got up and he left. And we get a rare author's commentary on what is going on. Usually in Genesis, the narrator just tells the story and he leaves us to draw our own conclusions. But this is so outrageous that he can't help commenting. So Esau despised his birthright. What is he doing? He's he's confirming that far from being passed over against his will, Esau has no use for the privileges of being the firstborn. He will sell them even for a bowl of lentil soup. And this is how the process of election always works. You see, those that God does not choose for his kingdom, they don't lose something they're desperate to have, but can't have. They lose something they hate, and willingly reject, as we all do, naturally. See, as terrible as it is to think of God's final judgment in hell, it's not as if people will be saying, it's not fair that God didn't choose me. Rather, they will be saying, I got exactly what I wanted. 
Why would I want to spend eternity with the God of the universe? They'll be thinking, I didn't want to know him during my mortal life, and I don't want to know him now. It's painful and it's shocking and it's tragic to see it like that, but that is exactly how it was for Esau. He got what he wanted. He got rid of his worthless birthright that meant nothing to him, and he got his bowl of soup. And so Esau confirms his unworthiness. He ends up with what he deserves and what he wants. But the sting in the tail, throughout these chapters 25 to 35, is that Jacob, by contrast, is actually no better at all. It's not that Esau was undeserving and Jacob was the better brother. No, in a different way, he is just as bad as his brother. And so we see that then. Jacob lives up to his name. He lives up to his name because he, he, he is a schemer. He is a usurper. The interesting thing is that Moses, writing this, doesn't comment on Jacob in the same way that he comments on Esau. All we know is that on the surface of things... There is nothing here to commend Jacob to us as an example. It's rather like Abraham trying to shortcut the promise by sleeping with Hagar rather than waiting and trusting God's promise. It's the same issue here, manipulating the situation rather than trusting God and waiting. And yet, the result is that Jacob does indeed receive the birthright. Why does that happen? It can only be because it was what God had promised in the first place. And so again, the point of this story is not to make us think, well, Jacob was amazing, he deserved this. No, no, he didn't deserve this. The point is rather to make us marvel at the grace of God, that he even chooses and uses deceitful schemers and sinners. And if we struggle with this, it's worth asking why. There may be aspects of this that we don't quite understand and we can't quite get our heads around why God would do it like this. Actually, surely that is how it ought to be if God is God and we are not. There's a danger when we insist that God must do things our way and I will only accept this if I could have come up with this myself. Well, what are we trying to do there? We're trying to make God in our own image, aren't we? But more than that, when we struggle with the idea of God choosing one person and not another, is it because deep down we believe that there really must be something about us that God thinks is worth saving over against the next person? If that were actually the case, wouldn't that be incredibly arrogant? Wouldn't it involve an extraordinary level of self-deception about what we're really like? If we think really it comes down to to people needing to deserve to be saved, what on earth are we saying about ourselves? What have we not understood about the blackness of our own hearts left our own devices? Surely a more appropriate response is John Newton's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If we can't say that and mean that, We haven't really understood what Christianity is about. How can God possibly save sinners like Jacob, sinners like us? He can only do so because he sent a saviour who is not like us, and not like Jacob, and not like Esau. You see, Jesus 
had a birthright. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul puts it like this. He was equal with God. And so his birthright, which he, what he deserved in his birth, was to be worshipped and praised, wasn't it? But he did not consider this something to be grasped, Paul says. But he made himself nothing. And unlike Esau, he knew the value of that birthright. And unlike Esau, he gave it up not for nothing, not for a bowl of lentil soup, but for the salvation of his people. And unlike Jacob, he did not view people as objects to be used and abused and manipulated to his own ends, but he served obediently as God asked him to do. He washed his disciples' feet. He purchased the birthright that we don't deserve, not with a cheap bowl of soup, but with his own blood. That is the saviour God has provided for us. That is the saviour that we need. And in God's kindness, any kind of person can be in his family. No sin is too great. No sinner beyond the pale. In him there is grace. There is relentless grace. So all the glory goes to him. So as we head into this new year, we may be conscious of the need for resetting, for refocusing, for recommitting for the year ahead. We may be thinking about the year gone by, the hopes the expectations, the things that we achieved and didn't manage to achieve. But as we head into this new year, as we head into schools, we head into work, let's know that the God of Jacob, the God of relentless grace through Jesus Christ, goes ahead and in the face of whatever is to come, the number one thing must be to trust him. So let's pray now. Father, we know if we're honest that this is what we're like. We're like Esau, who gave it all up for a single meal. We're like Jacob, undeserving, scheming to get our own way. What we need is Jesus. And we praise you that you have given us a saviour who was not like Esau and Jacob in these ways, but willingly died for sinners so that we might put our trust in him. Thank you that we can then humbly know that we belong to you. That you have chosen us, not because of anything in us, because how could there be? But because of your mercy, because of your grace. And if anyone is yet to know that for themselves, may they simply reach out and accept what you offer us in Jesus, that rescue that is ours if we put our trust in Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.